This is Travel Wise, the travel podcast for growth-hungry entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore travel, continuous learning, and the psychology of flow. Ready for takeoff? Ask me why. Welcome, everybody, to 52 Living Ideas. We are at the very final grand finale presentation, our last chapter of this book that we've been on a journey reading together, Flow, the Psychology of Optimal Experience by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Even though we are at the end, I believe it really is a good grand finale. We're going to be talking about flow and meaning making and just having an opportunity to share as a group our own key takeaways and perhaps the meaning that this book and this group exploration has had for you, which I think is perfect timing for this time of year. We're recording this right after Thanksgiving here in the United States. So thank you all of us who joined us. Hopefully you're not too full on Turkey and you got all your Black Friday shopping in and we can get this book club started. So the format for today, it's going to be slightly different from what we've done in the past where you do have a quick slideshow presentation. So no worries if you didn't read the last chapter or any of the chapters of the book, we're going to quickly catch you up on, on everything you need to know about the chapter here. And then we're really just going to open it up to a group discussion today. We've got a smaller group anyway today right here during this holiday weekend. And it'll just be an opportunity for us to have a nice big group discussion and close out the book here. We ready to get started, Maritza? Yes. Can, can you see these slides? Yep. Here, and I'm going to put the link here in the chat. Fantastic. And yep. So if you guys want to grab the presentation you're about to see, just follow the link that's posted. Um, it'll You'll be able to grab it. And um, any of you, if you missed any of the previous weeks, I have all of the PowerPoints. So send me a personal message via meet up and I will um, share them with you if you have a need or a desire to see them. But this one might even be the most important of all the PowerPoints because it's got the summaries of all the chapters for the whole book and then the cherry on top with the last chapter here and right. making meaning with flow. So just to start in again, for those of you who may be new with what is flow, flow is often defined as the optimal state of human consciousness. It's when you both feel your best and perform your best. It is the state in which you're so immersed and involved in an activity that nothing else seems to matter. You lose sense of time, you lose your sense of self, and the experience is so enjoyable that you experience it as a kind of end in itself. And to achieve flow, you need, we're going to talk about a bunch of different things, but some of the most important are having realistic goals, having skills that match the challenges at hand. And it is this experience of being completely focused, completely immersed and involved in the activity that you are faced with. 
And here's our favorite graph that gives you a diagram, pictorial image of what flow is all about. You can see on one of the axes here are your skills as they are progressing from low to high, and then the challenges from low to high. So perhaps if you're just learning a brand new skill, it doesn't take too much of a challenge for you to be in that sweet spot. But one of the things about flow is that it, it's all about growth because as you grow and develop your skills, you take on more and more challenges to be in that sweet spot, that flow channel where the challenges meet the skills. And here's just a quick recap of at this point, it's the whole book, everything that came before. We started out in chapter one with a kind of philosophical reflection on what happiness is all about. In chapter two, we started exploring consciousness itself, paying since being focused is necessary for the flow state. Uh, let's see, when we go on to the next chapters in chapter three, we really got into all of the nitty gritty details, uh, components that go into the flow state, how you need clear goals, immediate feedback, the balance between challenges and skills, that experience of action and awareness feeling as though they merge, either you're not distracted when you're in this flow state, uh, the, your sense of time and self distort and pass strangely, lose your sense of self, and the activity is experienced as an end in itself. In chapter four, we got into some of the conditions of the flow state, and then we started examining the body in flow in chapter five, which was followed in chapter six by the mind in flow. And Mertz, if you want to jump in and add anything to these, I'm just kind of going through everything really quickly here. So we get to way to chapter 10, which is where we're at. Uh, right. Chapter no, seven. It's fine. I'll wait until yeah. we go through and takeaways again. So after talking about mind and body and flow, we started talking about perhaps the, the two most important ways that people spend their time, which is at work and in relationships. So we examined work and flow in chapter seven, which was followed by chapter eight, where we looked at flow in relationships and also flow in solitude. And in our previous session, which was called cheating chaos, we looked at flow as a way to cope with and even perhaps overcome some of the worst stressors, challenges, real tragedies and trauma that people experience in life and how flow can be helpful and healing even in that way. And that's going to bring us all the way up to where we are today, the very last chapter of the book, chapter 10, which is all about flow and the making of meaning. Uh, and to, to point out, just to get us started with this idea of how flow is related to the making of meaning. And MC points out to us that as it says here, the transient nature of life will leave you void of fulfillment. You need to compile life into a continuous flow experience. 
everything in this world is temporary. So you must be prepared by not placing all your happiness on external things like career, family, materialism, etc., which all dissipate in time. And in order to translate life into a continuous flow experience, you must have a goal in life, an ultimate goal that gives you a sense of eternal satisfaction as you grow and progress toward that goal. And this really is what we're going to really focus on for the most part today about how having this really broad life purpose kind of life goal can help you create this long-term meaning in your life. And then we got into the description of what meaning means, like that, that quote about, you know, it depends on what the meaning of is, is. So this is what is the meaning of meaning. And um, just to, to maybe emphasize this point, which I guess was a little bit on the last slide, but we didn't quite yet talk about it, but we're going to get into it here, which is that in MC's presentation here on the chapter, there is no one meaning of life that he's going to argue that all human beings should be striving toward, that we are individuals. And so it is up to us to craft and create our own meanings to our lives. But that there are some guidelines that he's going to give that will help you uh, be able to achieve, as he's going to call it, this continuous flow experience so that you achieve this level of happiness that is more enduring. And so this quote here at the top says, the meaning of life is meaning. Whatever it is, wherever it comes from, a unified purpose is what gives meaning to life. And he says here, creating meaning involves bringing order to the contents of the mind by integrating one's actions into a unified flow experience. And so this is an idea that we've been talking about a lot in these sessions as we've been discussing what flow is. One of MC's favorite descriptions of flow is the flow is all about bringing order to consciousness as opposed to chaos or disintegration that when we bring order to our consciousness, it's what gives us these experiences of happiness, fulfillment, you know, deep level meaning. And that that's what we're exploring here. I would like Do you to want point, to say some more here? Yes. I would like to put your attention to one little sentence that is just so impactful here on this page. Meaning is intent translated into action. And I find that that is so, so important in our striving towards obtaining and maintaining the flow channel. Intent translated into action. You can intend all day long to do something. But if you don't actually get up and move to do it, that intent has zero possibility of becoming a done deal or becoming action or even partially, you know, there's no way you can walk on a path towards whatever is the intended item or thought if you don't take some type of action. If you want to get from point A to point B, you must move. And I think that's vital to remember in all aspects of our lives. Mm -hmm. Exactly. As much as we're talking about consciousness and happiness, 
that happiness requires us to do things physically in the world. There is this real integration of mind and body that's required here. Love that. And I'm uh, and drawing our attention this, to this. Yes. And since this is the last chapter, I'm going to say it again. If we are very fortunate, we will move with intent along our meaningful path, finding the flow channel, and happiness will be a byproduct. We will find happiness through moving forward on our meaningful path, as opposed to kind of blindly seeking some notion of happiness, which I personally believe is a, the best way to miss finding any happiness is to just keep trying to find it. So just move with intent and hopefully you'll find that on your byproduct. I really like this last bullet point you have here on the slide that says, when an important goal is pursued with resolution and all one's varied activities fit together into a unified flow experience, the result is that harmony is brought to consciousness and then you experience this flow state. But it, it's all of these components that you've been talking about. It's you have to have the goal, but you also have to pursue it and keep pursuing it. You know, find that resilience, even when times get tough, to keep going after that goal. And then it's not by you know, seeking some abstract notion of happiness, but by actually integrating everything into this grand life purpose that then harmony and happiness are the byproducts. It's what happens as a result of doing that. Indeed, and it also is a lovely portent and preview to what lies in the next couple slides. So we've talked about having a kind of grand goal, grand purpose, and then we're going to now discuss how one actually goes about cultivating purpose. Um, and so this is kind of first bullet point suggests here, it is possible to find a unifying purpose and ultimate goal that justifies the things a person does day in and day out. This goal will define the challenges that you need to face in order to transform life into a flow activity. And then building a complex meaning system seems to involve focusing attention alternately on the self and then on other people. And then he's gonna get into four different stages of how we kind of combine both the self and others into the, the grand purpose that we are, are crafting. And I'll share like this was, this was even a point that I learned from Stephen Kotler and, and his presentations on flow. He always talks about, he, he'll make a distinction sometimes between passion and purpose. And he kind of talks about that passion can perhaps itself be something that is just totally you know, individualized. It can be something that you, know, you just do in solitude that does not involve other people. But in order to live a meaningful life, you ultimately need to take your individualized passions and then transform them into something that not only brings value to you, but to others. And that's really how you transform passion into purpose. And then there is this harmony between your goals and your values and providing value to others as well. Marissa, did you want to maybe talk about the four stages here that, yes. that MC discusses? So these four stages, he calls them therefore the emergence of meaning through purpose along a gradient of complexity. So what 
he means and and he does state this as in these are not steps that we all must follow they're not steps that we all shall follow they just are steps that are available that we have the potentiality to follow and these are this is my wording his wording is not exact this is kind of how I understood what he was saying, speaking about these four, because he didn't give them exact names. So I picked names for them for ease of remembrance. The four steps along the, you know, of it in the emergence of meaning through purpose, self-interest, group values, self-actualization, universal values. Now, what you notice is you go from self to other back to self and back to other. And that resonates lovely with me because I really truly believe that this here is the key to our betterment of ourselves, our community, our culture. Fortify the self so that you can fortify the community. Fortify yourself again, go fortify the community. That's what I see here happening. It's an iterative process. Kind of like, you know, you improve yourself, regroup, see what's improved, go back to the group. If every individual in a group retreats to their own corner, does some self-improvement, comes back, you touch base, you see what's better, you pick and choose what you're going to collectively move forward with. Now you have new tools, new strengths, new knowledge, some of which you didn't have to strive for. And then you go back to your corners. And that's kind of what's happening here. And this is the way that culture evolves. That's what I see here in this model. It's this ebb and flow of from the self to the other. It's a very natural process. And so what it's, and what he, and some people never get out of the first space, but that's not a negative thing. If you never pass the stage where your basic needs are met and you have breathing room, who are we to assume or expect that you could possibly have room in your psychic energy left over to focus on other people in, a, in the general sense? So you're, you're going to make absolute certain that you can live. And this, you see this if we look at it from a family unit or even my, one of my favorite examples always is the mask. When one is in an airplane, they always tell a parent, in the case of loss of cabin pressure, the mask will fall down. Please affix the mask to yourself first and then help your child with their own mask. That's what we're seeing here. You may pass out and be of no use and leave a child motherless or fatherless if you make the decision to put their mask on first. If you make sure you have your oxygen first, now you have made certain that your basic need of oxygen is handled. So now you focus on your family and make sure their basic need of oxygen is handled. And then when everyone in your family is secure, you might look around the cabin and see who's struggling, who needs help. And once that is, you go back and you're like, how can I get my family out of this? And if you guys find a way to get out the cabin safely, you might again look back after your family is safe 
to make sure. And that sounds self-involved or selfish, but it's, this is like almost common sense. It's not good or bad. It's just a natural ebb and flow, almost like a survival instinct, if, as it were. This is how I'll, I'm understanding it. Um, and so this is what it's saying. And when we talk about self-actualization, it's you're, you're reflecting on your individualism because you've got what has been gained with when you were focusing on group values. Now you have a little more and you focus on that. And the, the interesting thing about this one is that this is the phase where we see a lot of, and this is what MC tells us, the midlife crises that many of us here, at least in the United States, experience. It's because of this, because as we're increasing our skills and challenges, we're maturing past the basic seeking of pleasure, and we're seeking to find things that are more enjoyable than pleasurable because there's a little more meaning to be found in enjoyment. We are kind of butting heads with our very self, challenging what is our limit or straining against what we believe to be a limit. And, and MC says, this is from whence comes the midlife crises because many people find themselves around the time when they're having the midlife crises, the goals they had set for which they had this singular purpose, now they've been met. If you're at your midlife, you've, you're accomplished at work, you're done with schooling, your children are well and flourishing, and now you might flounder. You might be like, wait, what, what's next? This is the point why they're regrouping and if we could somehow find our way out of stage three and towards stage four, what we're seeing here is that now we can contemplate the ultimate goal of ours because we have to identify it, re-identify re it as step three. Then you're going to move towards looking at the universal values as in what is bigger? What is the transcendental, I don't want to say meaning of life, but that's, that's the vein we're talking here. And again, these are not must-haves, and there's no failure in not getting to them. There are different reasons why different people may or may not move three steps or may move up and down. So it's not a judgment to show these. These are just, these are the possibilities. And in some very tangential way, step four is a goal all of us harbor somewhere deep in our little corner of our mind, even if we're not aware of it. Because ultimately, that's what we all want. We want this transcendental merging of values to create a universality that is just so above everything and fits over everything, whether or not that exists. I don't think I'm far enough on these steps here to tell you. But anyway, that's how I um, understand this. Thank you. Yeah. No, and I love how you're even describing them as, you know, they're possible stages, but I think it's important to, 
to stress too, that it's not, it's not step-by-step, you know, as you're saying that you don't have to go in this order. And it's one of even the big lessons that I've learned this, this past year, um, you know, something that I learned about even, so, uh, Abraham Maslow is the psychologist who was famous for what's often called the hierarchy of needs that ends with self-actualization. But um, recently there was a book that came out, Transcend, by the current psychologist, Scott Barry Kaufman, who works in positive psychology, actually does a lot of really interesting research on flow as well as self-actualization and has been kind of going through the research and has redefine that model. He, he, in his view, it shouldn't be a pyramid, but he views it as a kind of sailboat where there are uh, more of like the core needs that you need to have met. And then, you know, be like the sail of, you know, growth and self-actualization and transcendence. But I think it is important to recognize that you can kind of come in at any one of these levels and sometimes even a strategy for dealing with the you know, perhaps lower first levels is to start to put your attention on some of the higher levels. So I think the classic example of this is Viktor Frankl and what he talks about in, in his book about, uh, you know, which is all about you know, making meaning as well. And this was, he was talking about his experience of, uh, you know, being a victim of the Holocaust and being in the concentration camps. And he was someone who survived. And just so some of his reflections on, you know, why he thought he was able to sustain, it ended up being years that he was trapped in the concentration camp and even how, you know, psychologically he was able to sustain himself and survive, whereas others didn't. And one of the important things that he talked about was he was someone who had at that point, you know, goals at the level more of universal va- universal values and self-actualization. He had a purpose. He had, he was a, 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 you know, he was in the middle of his career as a psychologist when he got thrown into the concentration camp and just had this burning purpose to have to get out there. And he, you know, he had a book, you know, inside of him that he had to get out there into the world. And just having that sense of purpose is precisely what you know, he credited it as helping him to survive, you know, and, you know, in this horrendous traumatic situation where the basic needs of food and basic shelter and, you know, basic physical health were not being met, that it was precisely, you know, by focusing on the, what you might consider the higher levels that he was able to, to keep going and to find that resilience. So, yeah, I think just important to recognize that, you know, as much as we're describing these as stages or as steps, I always like to think of them, you know, more as the spiral. We've, we've talked about that metaphor before. And just to recognize that you can perhaps come into this spiral at, at any different levels. And then perhaps maybe your strategy for dealing with one of the seemingly lower levels is to purposefully start aiming at the higher level. Sometimes you know the best way to that people deal with personal tragedies is to start thinking about others. Like I like I always think of, um, you know, like my classic example of this is the mothers against drunk driving. Like you know I can't even imagine being a parent who loses a child to drunk driving, and the way that these mothers and, and parents deal with their grief is precisely to take that horrible tragic incident and give it a purpose that you know that adds value to others and adds value to the community. So just to put that out there as well. So then we're gonna get into forging resolve because the idea here of having a purpose, having a long-term goal is this, this isn't just a goal like 
making yourself dinner. Uh, maybe that was people's goal this past week to make a fabulous Thanksgiving dinner, but now it's done. This is a different kind of goal where you're really thinking about a life goal, a life purpose, and that's going to involve you know, all sorts of different stages and steps and components. And by the nature of life, it's not all going to go smoothly. So what's involved in developing resolve um, in you know, psychology now, it's even been identified as grit. Angela Duckworth came up with this concept of grit um, that often now gets talked about in combination with flow, that, that part of even how one is able to, to develop a, a life of continuous flow, as MC describes it here, is precisely developing skills in grit, skills in resolve and in resilience. Um, so as he says here, um, your purpose gives direction to one's efforts, but it is not necessarily make life easier. In our complex culture, there are too many goals competing for prominence. It's difficult to achieve a degree of total resolve. There are too many things you can do and too many people you can become. So this is this is just even one of the challenges of choosing a goal, uh, especially when you're polymaths, like a lot of people in this group here, and there's so many things that you can do and so many things you want to do. And I would argue so many things that you know, life Life you can and ought to, I believe, be filled with all sorts of different interests. But there's also a sense in which you want to even start to think about how can you take these you know, wide varying interests and bring them into one unified kind of purpose that you can grow with, that, that, that by pursuing this goal over time allows you to grow and develop the complexity of self that MC always talks about as being so important to flow and happiness. Do you want to say some more about this one, Maritza? Yes, I just want to point out the, the last um, bullet that has the, the questions. Um, I, I really like the concept of um, activity and reflection um, being complements and supportive of each other. The, and it's, I love, I really, so in the, this chapter, in this section, there's actually, there's several pages that goes on describing a um, purpose, a, a path towards purpose that is purely activity-based and then a path towards purpose that is purely reflection-based. But the purpose is to explain to you why one only is not enough. Um, as with anything, you know, everything in moderation, right? Or uh, anything, uh, too much of one of anything is just, it's not the best solution. So what we're being told here is that the better path is to try to hold both. And I love the phrase ac action by itself is blind. Reflection by itself is impotent. So if we add that small sentence onto the one from before, where we're talking about meaning is, um, hold on, I don't wanna mess up that, this, this statement. So I'm gonna actually read it to you. Meaning is intent translated into action. Activity, by itself is blind, reflection, impotent. You put those two together, you have like this immense, immense statement here. The idea that you must move, but don't forget, 
sometimes stop and reflect and then adjust the intent and then move some more. And that's basically what we're told here. He gives us some fantastic questions um, to ask ourselves. And I like the way he says it, before investing great amounts of energy in a goal, it pays to raise some fundamental questions. Is this something I really want to do? Is this something I enjoy doing? Am I likely to enjoy it in the foreseeable future? Is, this, is the price that I and others will have to pay worth it? Will I be able to live with myself if I accomplish it? These questions are all part of the moving with intent. If one asks no questions, when one is taking action, is one moving with intent? So I really love these because it's yet another way of reminding us to move with intent. Thank you. I just want to read the quote you have here at the top too, because I think oh, it's sorry, a, yes. a great summary here. Oh yeah, can we stand on for a little bit longer there? Um, um, he says, the price one pays for changing goals whenever opposition threatens is that while one may achieve a more pleasant and comfortable life, it is likely that it will end up empty and void of meaning. I think it's just another really important thing for us all to start to reflect upon how it is precisely through facing up to challenges and overcoming obstacles. This is how we grow. This is how we develop complexity of self. And life is such that you know, things aren't always going to stay the same. There are going to be challenges. There are going to be oppositions, obstacles, things that stand in your way. And that this is part of life and part of how we make life full of meaning and full of happiness. And it's just, I think, important to, to point out that happiness is in this way distinct from just pleasure or comfort. Happiness involves precisely going out and doing the hard things, the things that may not feel all that pleasant or all that comfortable or all that happy, perhaps, in the moment are what lead to that deep level of happiness and that deep sense of meaning overall. Just one more thing here before I move on. The strife is what helps us grow. The struggle. We, we destroy the existing self so that we can create a new, better self. And that's my personal take on it. So now we're going to get into talking about how we achieve this sense of harmony. Uh, I like the quote here at the top too, the consequence of forging life by purpose and resolution is a sense of inner harmony, a dynamic order in the contents of consciousness. There's a lot packed in there, but I think it is a really great summary of, of everything that we've been discussing so far in the book and then in this chapter in particular. So this idea of having purpose, of going after that purpose with resolution in the face of any opposition or struggles. And then when you do that, what the result is, you know, you're not pursuing happiness, but happiness is the byproduct. And you get that, as he says, your sense of inner harmony. And I love how he describes it as a dynamic order. 
sometimes that, that, you know, that's not often the way we think of order. We think of order and structure and stability, but this is order that is dynamic because life is dynamic and human beings are dynamic and growth is dynamic. And so the, the ultimate goal and end result that we are striving for here isn't a set result. It is precisely a process. It is order that is dynamic in consciousness. And then just a, a couple sentences here. So he says, we achieve a sense of harmony by chasing meaningful goals. These are goals that we would chase despite any obstacles toward achieving them. And when we chase such goals, we feel a sense of order. And I'll just read this next one too. The more complex any system, the more room it leaves open for alternatives, and then the more things can go wrong with it. This is certainly applicable to the evolution of the mind as it, it has increased its power to handle information. The potential for inner conflict has increased as well. When there are too many demands, op options, or challenges, we become anxious. When too few, we get bored. And so here again, we see that model that we've been talking about of the flow channel where we're looking to balance the challenges with the skills. And he's, as he's pointing out here, when the challenges are too great, we're not in flow because we're just in that state of anxiety or frustration. But if there aren't enough challenges, then we just end up in boredom. The last bullet here is the first sentence is almost word for word from the book and the second is a paraphrasing of mine order based on innocence is now beyond our grasp a thing once known cannot be unknown and the thing here is that it seems a very dark statement but really what it's reminding us is that we live in a world where the knowing of things continues to grow and grow and grow. And what that does is it, it is almost an exponential growing of our choices and options, especially those of us who live in such a technologically advanced society. That can create so much more, in, uh, he uses the word cacophony, and I like that because there's, there are going to be inevitably conflicting values, choices, beliefs, and our behaviors, you know? So it's the, the idea that the chaos in our life because of our world of technology is vast. We are living with a bombardment of options and it does create such noise that we do have to try harder perhaps than our ancestors would have had to in order to kind of wrangle it back towards the side of order. But it's kind of a push and pull and it's something you work for. And this concept of create re recovering harmony is this, where you're taking this massive chaotic state in which we find ourselves on the level of a society and attempting within our personal selves to wrangle it into some type of order. And here we're gonna talk about 
he says here's a unification of meaning in life's themes and how I love how he puts it here as he says at the top complexity consists of integration as well as differentiation and this even gets back to that the slide we were talking about a little bit before where we were talking about you know, individuals and groups and that I think is just even one manifestation of this broader idea of bringing together both integration and differentiation. He says, just as we have learned to separate ourselves from each other and from the environment, we now need to learn how to reunite ourselves with other entities around us without losing our hard-won individuality. So you know, this is something we do within ourselves and then how we bring our individual into, our differentiated individual into integrating with the world more broadly. This is up here. Instead of accepting the unity of purpose provided by genetic instructions or by the rules of society, the challenge for us is to create harmony based on reason and choice through the use of goal-directed goal actions, or as he calls them here, life themes that provide shape and meaning to an individual's life. So he's pointing out here that what your purpose will be is not something that should just be given to you because of your genes or because of what society says, that ultimately it ought to be something that you choose based on your own thinking, based on your own beliefs and your own values. And then that helps you create your own sense of unifying purpose. And then that's something that you bring out then to others and to the wider world. Do you want to read us here the very end and the, the last sentence of the book here? Sure. So, you know, this the, the beauty of this chapter to me is that it really, in a way that it was kind of a critique we had for several of the other chapters, the, the, the sub-chapters within the chapters didn't always flow in the order we felt they should flow. This one, I feel the entire opposite. I feel like it flows just lovely in beauty. And it does a fantastic job of putting all the little strings we got from the earlier chapters together. And it culminates here, like he ties a little bow around all the themes he's discussed throughout the book. And to give you a little background, because you know we, we just give you the best bullets. He spends time, when he's talking about the unification of meaning in life themes, he's again talking about this ultimate goal. And he's talking about living you know with intent and purpose and forward movement and he describes how this is done and has been done for ages cultures and and he talks about how on a very basic level we should remember that we are standing upon the shoulders of our ancestors which i think is lovely and really speaks to me because you know, you guys hear me, I'm a little bit of a broken record. I've said this often. Even when one walks alone, one does not walk alone. One walks with the knowledge and the history of one's ancestry. He touches upon that here. And what he's talking about is this belief that we live in a time where the belief systems that our ancestors used don't quite work for us today we have a conflict on such a grand scale that there 
is need for a new type of life theme. So the ultimate life theme for humans doesn't quite work anymore because of our technological advancements, our scientific exploration. And so that all culminates in this paragraph here, where Mihaly Shik sent Mihaly, Mihail, hoping to say his name right, the last paragraph here. The most promising life theme for the future might be based on the realization that the entire universe is a system related by common laws and that it makes no sense to impose our dreams and desires, our nature, without taking them into account. He's talking about a symbiotic relationship, maybe, where there's more of a push and pull than a take, take, take. Recognizing the limitations of human will, accepting the cooperative rather than a ruling role in the universe, we should feel the relief of the exile who is finally returning home. And MC brings us home by saying, the problem of meaning will then be resolved as the individual's purpose merges with the universal flow. So all of us here today are extremely fortunate because now we know what the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate goal is. Universal flow, naturally. Let me get to the last slide here then. Yes, so we have, um, this, is, um, this is it guys. This is the very end, we've finished the book. Yeah, so this was just some, some of our key takeaways here and we're pretty soon just gonna open the floor to you to hear your key takeaways uh, from this chapter, from the book as a whole, and then also maybe any other questions or comments that you have at this point. Um, but here was just uh, some of our key takeaways and, and I like how Maritza even laid this out. So just even the introduction here that flow can't be forced on anyone. It's a personal level of extreme immersion that said, those who can cultivate flow for themselves will tend to be happier and more fulfilled to help yourself and possibly others find flow, set up a culture envi or environment that's conducive to flow. And I think that is very true that you know, the first way to create flow in the world is to start with yourself. You know, Jordan Peterson always says, clean your room. And this is, I think, that idea. You know, first you got to find the flow within yourself. And then once you do that, this idea of setting up culture or an environment. Um, some of you may have joined us in the discussions where we've talked about Maria Montessori, who has that idea of the prepared environment, that it's perhaps one of the best ways that we can, you know, if we're directly trying to teach or guide other young people to set up the prepared environment. I think there's even a lot of connection between what Maria Montessori was trying to, to do in her prepared environment to help young people get into flow states. Um, just even like if you know anything about the Montessori system, that might be something we might want to discuss as a group if, if other people want to chat about that. But just this idea that you start by you know, bringing the flow in yourself, and then that's a first step to even bringing flow to others and, and to the world. 
And then do you want to talk about these, these last three that you put together here, Maritza? Sure. So, so these are my words, but I kind of got them from some other, other people who had read the book, studied his works and um, the way in which they said it. So key takeaways, we've condensed it into three bullets. Seek enjoyment over pleasure. Seek the sweet spot between skills and challenges. And my favorite, life goals are irrelevant, are irrelevant. So set a life goal. These are the three things that we're asking you to take from this book. Um, and I, these are, these are the ones I see from the book. This was, by the way, my very first book I've ever read by MC and um, my first deep dive into the concept of flow. I cannot tell you how very much I have enjoyed walking through this book with all of you here today. I'm going to read a little bit of these three, three takeaways and then we're gonna open the floor to all of you. We really wanna hear your thoughts on any aspect of the book, any of the concepts that call your name. If you have additional questions, let's just, let's gather around the table and let's just chat. But first, let me, um, let me read these a little bit here for you, explain what, what we mean by them. So when, when we're saying seek enjoyment over pleasure, the idea is that, as we've all heard before, pleasure is fleeting. Enjoyment is more fulfilling. It's like you know eating the um, sugar-filled item that doesn't have very many nutrients. I mean, it's going to fill your belly, but it's not going to do as much for you as the thing with all the nutrients, you know, that broccoli is really gonna nutrient you. So enjoyment is going to provide the nutrient for your soul, if you believe in a soul, or for your consciousness. We're talking consciousness here. So consciousness is going to be fed by things that you have to do with intent, right? You are taking control of your attention when you are seeking enjoyment. When you are seeking pleasure, you are seeking to evade your consciousness. And so it's a little bit more of a escape mechanism, which is why we're saying, try whenever possible to seek enjoyment over pleasure. When we're telling you to seek the sweet spot between skills and challenges, we're pointing you back to our favorite graph. You wanna be in the flow channel and the way to find the flow channel is to find that spot where your skills and your challenges meet. You don't want the challenge to be so hard that it's frustrating or making you anxious, but you don't want it to be so low that you're bored. So find the right spot. And, and when you do that, this balance is what's going to help you grow. And grow, what is that? It's movement. And what we always want, we want the forward movement. We're talking about how to find ourselves generating more flow in all of our activities daily and throughout our lives. Movement. The last one, life goals are irrelevant. So set a life goal. The reason that I put it this way is because I personally am going to have on my gravestone, here lies Maritza, she sweats the small stuff. I really try very hard to get away from that. I do, I swear but I am aware that I am a work in progress. So I wrote this this way for anyone who happens to suffer from sometimes 
analysis paralysis by sweating the minutia. That's me. But I'm working on it. Me and MC, we're going to get better. So that's the purpose for the phraseology for this third takeaway. And what we're saying is you have the control. It lies within you. The intent is yours. The action is yours. What the meaning shall look like for you, it's yours to decide. You have all this power. So just put one foot in front of the other and start moving. Set the goal anyway and forgive yourself when you realize it's not the goal you wanted. Because you know what? Create a new goal because it's not the goal that matters is that you have one and you're walking towards it. I'm trying so hard to remember that. And the thing about these three, three takeaways is that what they're trying to do is to remind you that what we really want here, we want to be walking the meaningful path. So if we're seeking enjoyment over pleasure, we're seeking out that sweet spot between skills and challenges. And we are setting life goals, but remembering that they're ultimately irrelevant. I believe we're gonna keep walking that path. Thanks. So now we're gonna turn it over to all of you. If you have any of your takeaways that you wanna share, any questions or comments, you can see some of you have already been jumping on the bandwagon here and putting exclamation points in chat. So anybody who wants to share can go ahead and add to the queue here, or you can even uh, raise your hand. There's the, the chat function in Zoom if you prefer to do that. But first up, we have Evanique, followed by James, followed by Jack, who has two exclamation points. <laughs> but Evanique first. Yeah, so first of all, I want to thank you, Joya, and uh, you, Marissa, for doing this series. Like, this was a lion chair of work. I know it was. So thank you both for doing that. And it's been an amazing journey. Um, I think the, the first thing that I get is the balance between reflection and action. I think it's a theme throughout the book. It's, it's both. And, and I know for me, I can, re I can harbor on the reflection aspect of things and like overthink things like that's my thing like I overthink everything like Maritza was talking about her tombstones mine's going to be here's Evanique she died of overthinking it and not doing anything and so I'm working on that <laughs> um, but yeah and I think what I've learned and what I've done not only through uh, flow which has really been helpful but through like kind of all the 52 living ideas concepts is to learn to take action. And if it doesn't work, throw it out, do it again. I think that's key. I think we can't be afraid to fail. That's another key. I was so afraid to fail because I was like the nerd in school where I was like on the honor roll. So failing was not an option. <laughs> I, I was like that person. And um, so really taking on failing and just moving forward after and learning from it has really been helpful. 
Um, yeah, I love the part uh, when, Mar when Maritza, I think it was you that was talking about, or I think it was you actually, Joya, that was talking about uh, being a polymath. And the thing I liked about that and just studying that is that if you're disappointed in one area of your life or something, you have so many other things to focus on that you can feel the emotion and move on and just like focus on the other areas. And I love that. So I think that that also is key. Um, I love the part where it says strife is what helps us grow. I think Maritza said that. And I wrote that down because it's true. You grow through the strife, not through the happy moments. I think the happy moments are the celebration after you've gone through the strife, right? Like you've learned the lesson, you finally got here. And you can just take a moment to just celebrate that you made it through. And I think that's happiness. It's like, I made it through it and it's great. And, you know, I know why it happened and you're good. Um, I think there was a quote and I think Marissa, you said you paraphrased it, but I love the quote in the book. I think for me on my Kindle is on page 230. I don't know if it matches up, but it says the order is based on innocence is now beyond our grasp. Once the fruit is plucked from the tree of knowledge, the way back to Eden is barred forever. And I think I love that because like when I studied the Bible, I always wondered like what was the crime in eating from the knowledge of good and evil, good and evil, I mean, the knowledge of, yeah, the, the tree of knowledge. And I was like, well, why did God do that? And it's, you're, you know, like it is, once you have knowledge, you know, that pure bliss, that pure ignorant bliss is no longer. And so I'm of the type where I'm like, well, maybe that makes life better. You know, I don't so know. I, if I can jump in for a minute here. So an interesting thing is, you know, I, I rewrote it for myself without a reference to, um, you know, Catholicism, but something to ponder is the assumption is often made that the way back to eating is barred by the ultimate deity what if it's barred by us internally because the self has a knowledge so here's the thing is that when one did not know how to find that tree it didn't exist but now that one not only is aware of the tree has tangible evidence of said tree because one has eaten it eaten from its fruit one can no longer deny its existence. And when, when that being the case, how is it possible to go back? It's maybe like an, a relationship, you know? You have this relationship where you're in the honeymoon phase, it's perfect, you think that they walk on water. And then you discover that, you know, they are, abs you know, maybe they just absolutely cannot make a decision ever. So if you're gonna stay with this person for the rest of your life, you must make all the decisions. That's not necessarily good or bad. It just is. You cannot now pretend you don't know that fact because you know it. You can't, I mean, short of whacking yourself in the head to have amnesia, you're, you're not going to forget that fact. And so the path back to that honeymoon phase is barred to you but it's not barred to you by anyone or anything. It's just because now exists a bigger picture. 
because increased knowledge, you see more, but you also see less. And that see less is why, in my mind, that path to eating is barred. Just my, my two cents. Sorry, I continue. Go ahead. No, I think that was beautiful. I think that that's perfect. That was better than the way I could have said it. So thank you. I appreciate that. Because you're right. And I think that's why I like that passage too. Is I don't think it's a bad thing. You know, you know what you're getting into. I mean, you know, like in a relate, like I love the comparison of a relationship. It's like, and also you have to ask yourself, can I live with this? Like those questions that you had towards the end of the presentation, like those four questions, but I'm just going to paraphrase. It's like, can you live with the result? Can you live with that person not being able to make a decision? Can you live with, you don't have to necessarily like it, but can you live with the simple fact that you will always be the decision maker? And I think it's true in anything. Like every, each one of us have our talents, but each one of us also have our flaws. And if you're going to be in a relationship with someone, the question that you need to ask yourself, it's always can I deal with their flaws? And if the answer is yes, then you accept it fully. And the same thing for that partner and you. And then business is the same thing. It's like you find out the person's faults and can you still be in this relationship? I think it just applies all, all across the board. Um, so, and I love the, the last slide where you said life goals are irrelevant. So set a life goal. I, I so love that because it gives you the freedom to create. It gives you a creativity and that, you know, it's not as important. It's not like life or death. If you, a life goal doesn't work out or if you've completed that goal, then you can move on to another goal or create a new goal or maybe have that goal grow and go universal. I like that. And uh, um, sorry, seek the sweet spot and this is the last thing for me is seeking the sweet spot between skills and challenges. I think that's key because I had a job where I knew it like the back of my hand. And when I was laid off, I had to go with a job where, well, I chose a job. I didn't have to, I wasn't at that point yet, thankfully, but I chose a, a job that I knew would challenge me more. And I knew I didn't know the industry very well, but I was like, this will help me grow. This is the opportunity I need to grow because if I go back to the same industry, I'm not going to grow anymore. It's pretty much old hat, but going into a new industry would help me grow. So I think that's key. And it's been, it's been a challenge. It's been frustrating. It's been anxiety producing but it's also been great it's also been a learning opportunity and it's also made my days more fulfilling so that's what I've gotten as a summary thanks Evanique next up we have James and anyone Hi. else who wants to add to the queue here too just a just a type in exclamation point while James is coming on here yeah, I just wanted to give some of my reactions. Uh, I, I really loved your presentation. And uh, this I'm sorry I came in um, into this a little bit late. This is only the second one I've attended. But uh, so, and I understand this is the last chapter. So, but uh, it will be, uh, 
this this is something that I've always wanted to. I, I, I essentially always should have read because I was interested in the theory of flow, but I picked up one of the other books that were called Flow uh, that uh, were on the, in the bookstore when this uh, first came out. Uh, I guess something like twenty years ago, but uh, fifteen or twenty years ago. So it's uh, it's not, but it's it is uh, uh, something that. Uh, has been on my mind. It's something that's been compatible with what I'm. I've been doing. I like this uh, idea of uh, uh, life themes. Uh, in other words, something that I could probably use uh, in my work is a life theme. Um, in other words, uh, I thought my life theme was to uh, lead groups and to be a, a philosopher and to uh, educate other people in philosophy. And I think that. Uh, the being more conscientious about that as a life theme, I think is def something that is, is definitely going to help me. Um, it, the, uh, I've had a, uh, some difficulty with um, my physical existence, uh, like uh, because mostly because I'm an older person. And when I was younger, I took, um, diet and exercise very seriously. I was like a, kind of like a sub-athlete. I was a musician and I, uh, I, I took it as a kind of like, a, I always took diet and exercise as a challenge. And now I kind of like continue with a lot of the same habits. Um, but I, I think I'm realizing that I actually have to create a new triad uh, between diet, exercise and enjoyment. In other words, I need to approach it from a new aspect of integrating um, diet, which which sometimes I do extremely well because I'm a fairly good cook and I know all the rules. I know a lot of the rules for approaching diet in a in a in a good way that works for me. But I can extend that. I realize I can extend that. And one of the ways I could probably extend that is by letting the exercise lead. In other words, whatever contributes to my wanting to exercise and doing exercise better, uh, in other words, what makes me stronger, uh, is something that is will will probably will probably uh, contribute to my having the best diet and uh, not be overweight, not you know just 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 basically enjoy my life, enjoy what I eat, uh, enjoy the exercise that I do, as well as all the work I do. So I think the exercise is going to become a uh, much more, much more uh, important theme in my life than before, uh, in terms of using those techniques that I follow, like, um, uh, what do you call it, um, intermittent fasting, uh, keto, you know, anything that I throw in to my, and, and the, another one is like vegan, the, the vegan thing. I can even follow the vegetarian theme, uh, which I sometimes do, but I can, I can combine those different themes of, mm -hmm. of uh, diet in a way that contributes to my um, exercise by letting the exercise lead and increase my enjoyment. The other thing that I've done I can I can share this later if you want me to. It's probably a good time to break off, so I'll just put up another explanation flag, and uh, go on to a different subject. Thank you. 
Thank you, James. And, and, and I, I really love this example you're, you're bringing up. And when you're talking about being a musician, you're, you're reminding me of many musicians whom I know where it, we forget, I think, that playing a musical instrument is like an athletic activity. It requires a, a certain physical athletic state that you have to maintain in order to, to perform at your best. But I, I really appreciate what you're pointing out here, too, that, you know, we go through different stages in life and, and things change. So for example, first of all, our, our goals change. So it sounds like, uh, you know, maybe whatever your relationship is with music is different now than it was, you know, so many years ago. And so even what the you know, requirements might be to be in your best shape, to play your instrument, um, to be a musician is, is something different, not to mention just you know, going through life that our, our bodies are different at 20 than they are at 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, and hopefully many of us will live beyond 100. So it's not that we can ever just, uh, you know, kind of get stuck in, in a rut and think that whatever we started doing with, with one of these aspects of our lives, we can just continue, keep doing the same thing. And I love how you're suggesting the, the way that we can think about integrating, because that's what MC has been telling us about here, that we have to unify everything. And I love your point here about maybe, you know, kind of picking one of these things things. And then that kind of, you know, kind of sets how you would integrate all of the other things. So perhaps it's even, you know, once you figure out what kind of goal you're pursuing or what your activity is, then based on that, and then, you know, obviously like your stage of life, then you can think about, okay, well then what can my diet be? And then maybe what kind of exercise should I be doing so that all of these things kind of can come and, and come together into a, a beautiful whole. And then that that's just got to keep evolving as we all keep growing and developing and changing. Thank you for, for sharing that. Next up, we have Jack. And then uh, anybody else who wants to come in after that or, or come in again, you know, feel free to, to type exclamation point in the chat or, or raise your hand here. But Jack is up next. Um, yeah, first, uh, like Evanique had, had said, uh, thank you, Maritza and Julia, for hosting these. Um, you know, it, it's really interesting because I didn't know about 52 Living Ideas until like probably six months ago, um, maybe a little more than six months ago. And Flow was actually, it was on the top of my list of books to, you know, to want to read this year. And, you know, I kind of prioritize books that are both um, print and audio book, just because I like to, you know, listen to the audio as I'm reading. But this one, there's not an audio book. So it was kind of like, you know, sitting on my shelf for a while. And it just so happened that you, you guys, um, you know, decided to, to host these events. And so I'm really thankful for that. I'm very lucky that kind of like everything aligned. Um, but uh, yeah, so I guess I have, I have like four or five different questions <laughs> about this chapter. I think like some of the things that you, you've already covered in, in you know, the slide presentation, but one in particular maybe that I'll just focus on is this um, on page 230 with the, and you know, um, it's been talked about before about the quote, the, um, the order based on innocence is now beyond our grasp, All right? So, you know, I'll be honest, I, I disagree with, uh, you know, the, the concept that he, because it seems to me like he's making an absolute judgment, you know, where prior to that, he talks about a child's options are usually few and coherent, and, you know, he goes on and basically, and, and even before in the previous page, he talks about how uh, technologically less advanced people had limited choices. So order was so much easier. And so they could get it to flow that way, because they didn't have all the various different things that perhaps we have to, you know, um, consider in especially in a, in a more technologically advanced society right so um it seems to me like it's it, there's 
and there's probably more than two options, but the two options that I'm thinking about right now in regards to um, getting into order and to flow is the one that he pushes, which is the idea of purpose uh, plus resolution equals inner harmony to, you know, you achieve inner harmony. And so purpose is essentially having a life philosophy. Resolution is action. And then har harmony, um, I think he talked about, kind of talked about inf information structure, but it's essentially the uh, what equals purpose and resolution, right? And that's the unified flow experience. But um, but this idea that like you know we don't have the option of of having those limited choices or at least like controlling our environment in a way to to you know approach things that way or our lives that way. I I don't know if I can agree with that. Like a perfect example is there was a, a movie that was recently released called King Richard. And, and it's uh, Richard Williams. He's a coach of uh, Venus and Serena uh, Williams, who went on to become, you know, champion tennis players, and uh, you know, considered the best, pro probably the best in, in the tennis um, history. But anyway, I mean, if you delve into that story, he essentially it was a family that grew up in Compton, right? That um that lived in Compton and and their environment was insane, <laughs> like uh, you know the surrounding environment. But within that storm, he essentially created a an environment in the household where there you know it was like kind of like um he protected his daughters. He had them you know totally focused on the goals and, and things like that. So and in terms of choices, you know it's funny. I was talking to my sister that, uh, about this the other day. And uh, she's like, you know, how did this happen? Like, how did he do this? And how did these girls do this? Whatever. And, um, you know, I hadn't really read too much up or watched YouTube videos about uh, Richard Williams in the, in the background, but just from like reading Flow and reading, you know, some of these other books that I've been reading lately, I just figured, well, you know what? I mean, he basically didn't, you know, because my sister was asking like, you know, don't they have friends? I mean, like, don't, aren't they going to be influenced by the people around them or, you know, the various different environmental factors and stuff and like wanting to watch TV or not do things that like would lead them towards becoming championship tennis players. And like, you know, especially in, in Compton. And, and I said, you know, I said to her, I'm like, without knowing anything, probably the guy was a dictator. He basically like, you know, limited their choices where they didn't really have any, they're, they're, you know, there was no like, there, you know, I mean, in terms of the friends, it was friends, probably like the girls within the family. And to us, it sounds like shocking, that type of environment. It's not what we're used to. It's not like within our society, you know, we're, you know, kind of like looked at, at, at addressing these types of things of achieving high success is right. Having a goal, having resolution, and then finding inner harmony with that. But it's not to say that, you know, the idea of, of going back to like the technologically less advanced people where they have limited um, choice choices and then they can achieve order and flow which it sounds like this is what happened with these girls that's still possible i mean it's it's a choice you know but the thing is the reason why i disagree with mc here is because he's saying it's not he's saying like no it's absolutely not on the table at all like and that's kind of like i don't know weird to me um i, I might be wrong i that's just like my you know my opinion um yeah so I, anyway i i was wondering like what everybody thought about that um not, not, you know, that I, now that I bring that up. Yeah. Oh, that, that's really interesting. I'll, I'll jump in and say I, the way I read the book, I, I, I think MC agrees with you. I think he's even kind of, kind of trying to make that same point. 
um, by saying that this is how we get into a flow state is this, this was precisely the point when he was talking about resolve and how, you know, it is, you know, in our modern society, so easy to get distracted or, you know, you, you try to pursue one goal and you just, you know, hop from one to another to another instead of forging the resolve and the grit and the resilience to keep pushing through obstacles and to keep you know, going to, to, to achieve something. And, and even what you're suggesting of, uh, you know, what, um, you know, Richard Williams did for his daughters. I mean, it, it is sort of an interesting situation. And, and personally, I don't, I don't know much of the details about their personal story. Um, you know, I think MC would say that ideally, ultimately, the the desire should come from the daughters. And I would assume based on how Venus and Serena play that, that ultimately I think that, you know, there must've been, the girls must've loved to play tennis at some level. I think, you know, if you have a parent that's just, you know, a dictator and is forcing you to do something that you hate, uh, you know, I think it usually doesn't necessarily lead to the best results. Um, you know, and that ideally, you know, it should be something that, you know, as, as the children develop that they find themselves the motivation but certainly I think you know as parents it helps to do those things um you know and perhaps even what you're suggesting that you know maybe even you know if, if you're living in in a certain um, you know you know poverty or you know more difficult circumstances that maybe you, you don't even have all those potential distractions maybe you can't even afford a, a television set uh, you know maybe you you live in a neighborhood where uh, you know there aren't other safe homes that you can go and, and play with the other children so you know in order to have safety you're, you're maybe just you know in that sense you're kind of forced into a certain surrounding and there's not so much available to you but when I read even what MC was talking about here about um you know, kind of not being able to go back to innocence. I, I even took him to be reading more from speaking of our, at this point, our, our scientific and technological knowledge that, that we can't go back and let's say like pretend that we don't know about evolution and then, you know, go back to an earlier version of, let's say a belief in God that didn't have that perhaps, um, you know, that that's sort of the way I think that he was suggesting that, you know, we, we perhaps can't go back, but that, that was just my reading and maybe other people read it differently. So yeah, if you want to was... address it, yeah, Marcia, you want to something and then, yeah, I just want to say if anybody else wants to yeah. address it, um, you know, type exclamation in the chat. As well. Can I just, can I just say mm -hmm. one thing real quick? Um, yeah. So in terms of, uh, it's funny, I was watching this interview with, uh, with Richard Williams and, and someone asked the same question, like, um, you know, did you see a spark in your daughters when they were growing up? Like, you know, that told you that, yes, that, you know, they're going to be champion uh, or, or did they have interest or like, I mean, and he's like, his response was they didn't have a choice. Like this guy, he doesn't think the same way that we do in or, or what most people think in terms of like, you know, trying, essentially our society nowadays is like, give the children a choice, you know, like uh, see what interests them, have them try out different things and stuff and then foster that those skills within that area of interest, right? Like, he, no, and this is why I'm saying like, you know, the approach that he takes is completely different than, than what's, you know, in terms of like the way we think about things in terms of purpose and, and uh, you know, and resolution and achieving harmony. And, and it, I guess maybe the same way would, the thought would be like during medieval times, like say you're a blacksmith, chance that, you know, your son's going to be a blacksmith. <laughs> like you just inherit that, right? You don't have it. So he essentially limited, you know, the choices. There was, that choice was never in their minds, right? And, and he essentially like kind of like, um, and in some ways, I mean, it clarifies things, you know, for when, when you don't have, you know, it goes back to, to the whole idea of like these, um, 
these civilizations that, you know, aren't technologically advanced, they're just going to be hunter gatherers because that's the only choice they have, you know, and so they become really good at it and they achieve order and flow that way. So anyway, it's, it's a drastic, drastic departure than like what we think about. But, but the reason why I bring it up is again, that option is obviously there. It's just that most people aren't going to take it. So, you know, I'm going to respectfully disagree a little bit with um, Jack here. Um, I do, first I want to address the statement, um, the order based on innocence is now beyond our grasp. I, I also uh, kind of viewed it the way um, Joya did. I saw that as a um, definitive statement on the state of our technological advances in the realm of science um, and technology. Um, and I'm, I would like to use uh, Jack's um, example here. So yes, these are two children who were raised with a very, very strong parental control, but they knew that television existed. They may not have been able, allowed to watch it. They knew they were aware of its existence. Um, they're aware of what gravity is. They're aware, you know, of many of the equations that we live with, we don't even think about, but they shape our day-to-day. -day. Um, you know, E equals MC squared. You don't have to say that and keep it in your memory. All of us live with it in the background because we all sit upon that because those choices are our ancestry. So even if one is raised in a very secluded environment, we're still sitting upon these discoveries that our ancestors have made and things that we take as you know, givens. They're givens because somebody else discovered them or somebody else toiled for them to make them the thing. You know, we, all of us take plastic for granted, every last one of us. We never think of plastic. Plastic is a very, very new invention still. So things like this, I, I, I perceive that these are the things that MC was talking about when he was saying that the age of innocence is gone. You know, cause we have to make the decision. Do I want to wipe my um, countertop with a rag that I'm gonna have to now have to clean, I'm gonna have to put in the wash. You know, I wanna take a piece of paper, wipe it with a piece of paper and throw the piece of paper away. I have that modern convenience, which we don't even think about, but it's a choice. And it's one that our ancestors didn't have. That's the way I view it. Now, if we go back to this example of these two young women, children, when they were children, they it had to be this way. They did not give a choice. Now I have not had the fortune of watching that documentary, but I, you know, obviously I'm aware of the uh, Millennium Sisters. I actually view that as aligning beautifully with the concept of flow. So let me paint the same story to you. And I, I would love for you to comment on, on Jack. There, there's no, you know, this, this is just respectful, a little res respectful disagreement. I am definitely open to hearing more comments here. So if we look at it from a perspective, the, the way I see it, we're saying, or MC is telling us, so where's, we said in several slides back, we said that meaning is intent. Why do I always get that wrong? I apologize. 
meaning is intent translated into action. So this very, very strict father did not allow his children to develop their own purpose in life, their own meaning in life. He gave them meaning. He told them what their action would be. And that became their reality. And they found flow in that single-minded focus because what he did very, very well is he found a way to ensure that the skills matched the challenges and that every time they didn't, he increased the challenge. He propelled those girls into the flow channel. He pushed them, pulled them, prodded them along in a way that's not conventional. It's not what most of us experience. And so we're stuck having to flounder about on our own. All of the extraneous things that those of most of us had to deal with as children, they didn't have to. They didn't have to worry about, you know, makeup, clothing, boys, television, none of that. Social anxieties that we have to deal with, they didn't because they had a very strong, and, and Joya said it beautifully. She was like, you know, it was almost dictator status. People in countries where they are raised by dictators have a, an innocence and a simplicity about them that we don't. We live in a democratic republic. And as such, our base of options is so much vaster. It's not that the options don't exist for these people who live in a dictatorship. It's that they are controlled by others. So those things which we must focus, that which they must focus on are so much more narrow because they're being told, these are the only things you must look at. So what does that do? It takes away a bunch of options. It's not that they don't literally or physically exist or those two girls in their upbringing, they had less choices and, and less things to worry about or be distracting. So there was less conflict on finding that path. And so they were much more easily able to enter into flow. And that's what I hear MC saying to us. If we can find a way to weed through all the choices and all the options and all the conflicts, we can more easily get into flow. That's what I'm hearing. And so when I hear the story of these girls, it makes me smile because it's so different, a tale. But I see the same path. And to me, it brings into stark reality the concepts that we've been walking through here. Uh, sorry for taking up so much time, guys. I know a couple of you have been waiting. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to turn it over to James and Evanique and Jack. I'll, I'll just maybe jump in really just quickly and say that maybe one way you could think about this is that in a sense, you sort of have to be the dictator of your own life, which maybe is the harsh way to put it. But, you know, the the benefits of living in a free society where there are so many options that are open to us is that we have to impose that order to limit all of the 
the distractions to find that goal. That, that is the, the challenge that he's suggesting to us here, that we have to find that perhaps one unified goal that maybe takes in a bunch of different things, but that definitely weeds out everything else, minimizes all the distractions so that we can have the focus and the attention that get us into flow. And just to put the point and say that ultimately, I would say we don't want to live in a, in a society with dictatorships um, or even with dictatorial parents. I mean, as I said, I, I don't know much about the Williams sisters and, and specifically, but I do know just from other examples of children and parents, there is a way where that style can go drastically wrong. If you have a parent that's forcing their child to do something that they absolutely hate, that it just builds up resentment. And then by the time those children grow up, they, they just become bitter and resentful and the relationships break down. And, and we can see that that clearly didn't happen with these sisters. So, you know, the, there, there was at least a, like some element of luck where, um, you know, you get the sense that you know because the girls, you know, as adults embraced this and took it on as their own, that it it did ultimately become intrinsic motivation for them as adults, even if it started out in childhood where their father maybe even just by luck or happenstance happened to push them into something that they could ultimately, as they grew up, uh, embrace more intrinsically. But I want to turn Can it over and let yeah. Oh, yeah, Jackie, you want to say something quick first? And then we'll turn it to James and Ebony. Yeah, I don't think, like, it was luck. Like, I mean, if you watch the movie King Richard, like, this guy, you know, the the obstacles, and and I agree. I mean, driving kids in in a way where, you know, you're completely overbearing will cause a lot of kids to be bitter. There is examples of that in the movie where, you know, a lot of tennis parents, like like, the kids were having mental breakdowns in tournaments and things like that, right? Um, and that's probably most people. No, this guy, he was very skilled. He knew that there was like this, you know, um, um, Maritza talked about this ebb and flow. I mean, he essentially had this idea of ebb and, ebb and flow in terms of like when to, you know, apply hard work and then when it's just play, when it's enjoyable. And then like at, at a point where, well, I, I won't tell you the whole movie, but like, um, anyway, he, he, no, he was extremely skilled at, and he knew what he was doing in terms of turning these, these two girls into champions. Wow. So the results, yeah, are there. James wow. is up next. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, you guys, parents have parenting skills. This, this is, uh, I, I didn't expect to encounter this conversation. Uh, you, you get kids and you develop parenting skills that uh, you didn't even know you had because you were doing something else. You were being really good in school, or you're really uh, you're learning music, or uh, or trying to be the greatest lover, or you know whatever combination of those things, and you thought you were just an individual, but then you became a parent. Uh, yeah, you can call parents dictators, but that that's what they do. I mean, they they have to take care of kids and. Uh, the kids don't know what they want to do. Uh, they don't know that they're supposed to sit at the table and eat their dinner. Um, at a certain, you know, when you tell them to, they, 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 they have to follow those rules. And one that sets all the rules. Um, Mike gave me a book. Uh, he, uh, he told me uh, that he, about an audio book that he shared with me. And he said, you can, you can listen to this book while you're doing your exercise, dad. And, uh, or while you're doing housework, actually, is what he said. So, uh, uh, so that's what I'm, I'm done not doing that. I'm doing more, more, more when I exercise, but 
Uh, it's Norm MacDonald's biography. Um, and uh, it's really interesting because he was forced when he was a child to tell stories at the table. And even if he was too embarrassed to tell stories about himself, other people would tell the stories. So in other words, his family was not a musical family. His family was a talkative family. And they, everybody was uh, considered eligible to, be dis to tell stories or be discussed. So that was the nature of that dictatorship in his family. And uh, he couldn't like walk out of the house, you know, because people, there were probably other people in town, you know, according to his, his, his autobiography, there were other people in town, there's other relatives that would be doing the same thing. They would all be telling stories. So, and doing other kinds of human interaction. So human interaction involves, you know, being uh, bossing around, being bossed around, it's not all about everybody has to be brought up to do their own thing. Now, I, I, I love this story about um, the Williams sisters because sports is fun. It's just like music that way. You know, like whenever, when my kids picked up musical instruments, you know, it was almost like by accident because I didn't want to be a bossy parent. I didn't want to tell my kids what to be interested in. I wanted them to develop their own interests. Well, when they picked up musical instruments, I kind of perked up and kind of like, oh my gosh, you know, he wants to play piano. I can help him learn to play piano because that's something I can do. Uh, she wants to play the violin. Well, there's this whole system of playing the violin called the Suzuki method where there's supposed to be a parent involved pacing the child through their first year or two of violin. So I was like all over that. I thought that was lots of fun. And it kind of like was the way that she learned violin, although she didn't, uh, she didn't pursue it. Neither of them pursued it for very long. But what did happen is the, uh, the, the, you do these things, you do music, you do sports because you're in the zone. That's what we're talking about. It's a zone thing. It's in other words, it's not something you don't pay any attention to other things besides what you're doing when you're doing music. And that is exactly what this is about, is the, 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 the joy of creativity. That's, how, that's what got Jezemiah, uh, that's what got him involved in the subject to begin with, he wanted to find out what people who were creative were doing that allowed them to be creative. And that was, you know, being in the zone. And that's what music is. And that's what sports is. They're creative endeavors. I don't care if you're a basketball player or a tennis player or, you know, I mean, it doesn't look very creative, of course, when the football players all have to execute their roles. It's true. There's some sports that are look less creative than others. But, but, the, but, but most sports, when they, uh, when, the, when they focus on individual choices and individual action and, and individual talent, those are entirely creative and they require that the player be in the zone all the time, not following someone else's orders. 
Yeah, thank you, James. Like, it's a really good point that you're making that you, you, being in the zone is even maybe one of the, the catchphrases that we use that, that's the equivalent of what MC is talking about here with flow. And thank you for pointing out that this is exactly right, that certain activities like sports or music where there is that just, you know, development of skills is built into the activity. They just naturally lead into being flow activities. It's a great point. So we're coming up toward the end of our time. So I want to make sure that we hear from everyone here too. So um, we have Evanique who had something else she wanted to say and then something else from Midunes, if I have your name correct, I hope. You can let us know how to pronounce that. But Evanique first. Yeah, I just wanted to say um, about flow. I think, you know, one of the things since we're using the example of the, uh, of the Williams sisters, I think one thing that needs to be understood is that like I lived in a neighborhood similar to Compton. So you either gave your kids something to do or they found something to do on their own. And maybe it's not what you would want them to do. And it was a matter of danger in that. Like you didn't want, like, especially as, as women, you know, you didn't want your daughters associating with drug dealers on the street or, you know, unfortunately like getting turned out for things like prostitution or things like that. So I, I understand his mindset of keeping his kids on the right path. And that's what they called it back in the day. It was called keeping your kids on the right path. And that was giving them something to do. Now, my mom had the same thing with me. I had to do some type of activity at school, you know, whether it was a sport or whether it was like mine was debate and mine was theater. I had to do something after school. I couldn't just go home and that's it. No, I had to do something. I had to have some type of activity that was positive. And I think that's the way he did it. And th another thing is like, they had to love it because look at the career they made of it. They, you can't do that if you're not in flow and you don't love it. So maybe, yeah, in the beginning, they didn't have a choice, but at the end of the day, they always had the choice and they chose, even after they made millions of dollars, even if they won so many tournaments, they still choose. They still choose tennis till this day. Uh, they still choose it. And and another thing is that, you know, um, I think what uh, James was saying is right. Like you kind of have to be the dictator in the beginning. You don't have to do it in the end, but you got to kind of teach your kids how to do certain things. Like to teach, you're basically teaching them how to be a decent human being. And sometimes it takes a bit of dictatorship to let them know that certain behaviors are just not acceptable and no, it is not up for debate. So I, I think that's it too. But I think the, the, um, I think the book Flow, this goes perfectly with that because yeah, maybe they, your parent, they, maybe their parents did guide them, but they really had to love it in order to perfect being in that game or otherwise they just wouldn't have been that good. And it's the same as when fathers have their sons go do uh, little league football or little league baseball. When they put them in those type of activities, they're trying to have them on the right path instead of just wandering about. And I think there's something to be said for that. Um, so yeah, I, I do think, and the, the quote about the innocence, I think it's like, you can't go back to being innocent. And in my mind, it meant you can't, unknow what you know like once you've seen it um it once you've seen it you can't unsee it in a sense you know 
So I think that's what MC meant by that quote um, about the tree of knowledge. It's like once Adam and Eve ate from that tree of knowledge, there was no going back to Eden. There was no Eden because now they know, right? And so Eden was innocence. Innocence is lost. And it happens to all of us. Like we can't go back to innocence once innocence is lost. Um, so that's what I wanted to say. And I think that's why um, I just wanted to give another quick example. Um, you know, like me, I did not want to go to Catholic school when I was young. Everybody else in my neighborhood was going to public school. My mom was a dictator. She was like, uh, no, <laughs> you don't get a choice in this. And that's exactly what she said to me. You do not get a choice in this. You're going to Catholic school and I'm paying for it and you better do well. There wasn't a choice, but that's the way parents had to be kind of in the hood because you, first of all, Philadelphia public school system was not nowhere where people really want to go to begin with. But two, I don't get the decision. <laughs> I'm not, I don't have the knowledge and the experience to make that decision. And that's where our parents are there for. So yeah, but I don't think it's a dictatorship in that they had the choice at 18 to choose what they wanted to do. And I think that's where, like, I take the issue with the, the parents being the dictator. Uh, you know, they, you can get out at 18, whereas in a dictatorship, there's no getting out, so. Yeah, thank you, Evanique. So we're almost out of time. We're going to hear from the Dunes. I hope I have your name. Uh, correctly, you can tell us. But before we do, just want to say, so this is the final chapter, final presentation of this book. And I know uh, like Anita, I think if I have your name correctly, mentioned that this was her first time here. But Maritza and I were talking about hopefully even continuing this as a series, sub-series within 52 Living Ideas going into next year. And I, I actually think there's a whole bunch of different books we could pursue. So maybe even something, if, if you guys want to chime in here in the chat or think about us and send us a DM, but just even some potential ideas. So MC has other books. Um, his other big one is actually all about creativity and flow. So if that's something we want to look into, we could keep going with MC. Um, there's, for example, MC students, like Keith Sawyer was one of his top students who did a bunch of work on group flow. So he has a book, Group Genius, we could look into. Uh, there's other people who were, you know, th so this book came out almost 30 years ago now. So there, there have been other researchers who've been going into flow. I, like I had mentioned, there's Stephen Kotler and he has a book that came out last year, The Art of the Impossible, which is all about flow and peak performance with neuroscience. And then, you know, flow is generally considered within the broad umbrella of positive psychology. Ecology, so we could even we could look at books like uh, you know, Abraham Maslow or, or the Transcend book, which is like the updated look at, at Abraham Maslow or Martin Seligman. Um, you know, we could look at like I mentioned Angela Duckworth and the Grit book, or Evanique was talking about uh, like a growth mindset and um, just Carol Dweck's books. So I think there's a bunch of potential different books we, we could read and, and continue on this series. Hopefully the rest of you are interested. So yeah, if you guys want to even just, you know, maybe throw your votes up in chat or, you know, send either Maritza or me, or you could DM us via the meetup platform there. You can find us, uh, you know, in 52 Living Ideas meetup. So yeah, hopefully we can figure out how to continue this in, in 2022. But I'm going to turn it over to uh, Midunes. Yeah, thank you. Um... I've not been here, I've been the latest probably here, but just 
picked up to two two main topics. Very interesting, in my opinion, this the the education and the flow. Um, it touched me because I think I might have lived exactly the same thing. So I have been uh, almost laureate uh, in my school uh, school path, all, almost in all years, and have suffered from my mother really uh, being ex excessively strict or even uh, brutal to me, with me. But, but the thing is, I love this very much. I, I, if I, I can uh, thank her now, I don't know. This I consider the best thing she did with me in her in her life. Uh, there, there's a key word here. Uh, if it's so, this is the key word in my opinion. If it exists, then we know this is the the behavior is correct. If it doesn't exist, then we know it's uh, something uh, different, which is love. So usually the mothers or the parents when they when they're doing this with the with the with the child or with their children, they're doing it with love. I mean, probably that might be ignorance. It's, they're not all like um, uh, psychiatrists or psychologists that they, they know how to do this exactly the, the, the scientific way, but they most probably have inherited this from their parents and their grandparents and so on and society and so on. But they do it with love. They, they want their children to succeed. They want them to be the best. And in my opinion, if they, if in, even though they do it the wrong way, it's better than just uh, giving birth and then go, uh, the, uh, then uh, stepping away and then yeah, letting le letting a whole society face hitting the wall and then say why why people are failing and so on. So they care. I mean, of course there there should be uh, for uh, there should be collaborations and uh, education and so on to yeah share the best practices in this. But I think being um, uh, rather um, uh, demanding, let's say demanding with children and uh, putting pressure on them, stress on them, or at least in their early ages is, even though we have problems that, that we have some not perfect solution, but I think this is, this is better than just letting them to their desires because children, if you let them to their desires, these these uh, this uh, this era of uh, these ages are the most precious ages in the in the in the life. If they lose them, I mean, I I would say even one minute is is irreplaceable at the age of eight or seven or ten, twelve, fourteen, yeah, and so on. You, this you can shape a man that can change the world. Uh, you can you can you can discover a, a build capabilities in a genius and a prodigy prodigy child and so on. But if you don't put pressure on, on him, you cannot know which, which kind of skills he, he has, hidden skills he has there. I mean, yeah, you, uh, th this is, this is uh, I mean, I don't know if, there, if this should be a way like I have children and some kind of third party will interfere and does the, my, the education in my place? I don't think this is, a, the, this is the right solution anyway, but because they are my children anyway. But yeah, I am for uh, sharing the knowledge and improving improving the education process. And the flow is a, is a different topic. I think the flow is, I think the flow, uh, uh, the flow will come from if, uh, if someone loves something and he discovers that he has empathy or he has like special attraction to some kind of topic. And this is personal, like to mathematics, to liter li literature, to any kind of things, to football, to sports or something. 
if this is this is the the magic of the parent that he, he that he can discover that this child has a special uh, special skill uh, probably genius in this topic because you might try out different topics 10 20 and then you discover this and then once you discover this and you and then you, 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 you the, the flow will come by itself you, do, you don't do anything else you just let him with what he loves and then you then you have peers out so that's that's it because you cannot force it the flow is you cannot force it it's like meditation it's something that's uh, that it come by itself when the love and the empathy and the and the motivation is uh, is there yeah i mean just shortly two few words i wanted to 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 add or even repeat and yeah thanks for the for the for this yeah, yeah Thank you for sharing. We are almost out of time. Um, just want to let you know there is another 52 Living Ideas meetup right after this one. It's at 9 o'clock Eastern time, so that's eight minutes from now. Um, it's an exploration of the Bhagavad Gita, and so it is a different Zoom link, so you're going to have to we're gonna close this one out and you'll have to go to that one. But uh, Jeff has something to say, and then I'm going to let Maritza close this out here in the last couple of minutes. But Jeff, next. Well, I, I just want to thank you both for the what, what I know, um, the, the, the magnitude of this opportunity to um, interpret the book and, and organize your own thinking about it and, and be able to present this to us in a way that respects um, what one might think of as the paradoxes in, in the subject or certainly the combination of complexities and simplicity in the subject. Um, that, you know, the, 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 the idea, um, you know, the, your goals mean nothing, so set goals. <laughs> I, I think it, uh, I'm not sure that it could be expressed better than that. Um, the idea that, that meaning is, um, you know, the combination of some sense of where you are and some place that you'd like to get and uh, setting some intention around that and imagining ways to get there and trying them out and seeing what happens and learning from it and either changing your goals or changing the path or changing the people you're doing it with, that all of those things are always in flux. And that creates, you know, the fact that everything is changing. It, it's not a puzzle piece. Of, it's not. A, it's not. A, it's not a puzzle that's just sitting there with a picture that never changes. Um, the picture changes, and so do the pieces, and so do you. And um, and I want to thank you all for not sort of trying to make it any more organized, or as if there's there's one pure thing to know or think than there actually is, because it is wonderfully and beautifully uh, diverse and complex. And um, I really appreciate that you have taken that orientation to it all the way through. So thank you for that. Thank you, Jeff. Um, Jeff, you actually reminded me of, or you made me think of something. So I'm gonna put in a very short plug here. On Wednesday, December the 1st, we're going to have a discussion on the danger of the one story. I will be um, uh, hosting that one uh, with Srikant. And so you made me think of that. This book speaks to me so dearly because of that 
very same fact. This, there is no manual here. This book is not something you can grab and follow each page and then you're gonna come out happy. And he tells you that at the beginning. What he does is he tells you, I don't have the right answers. You don't have the right answers. Jack doesn't have the right answers. James doesn't, Joya doesn't, but that's okay. There is no one right answer. Everyone has to find their own path. My meaningful path, it's not gonna look like yours. That's okay. Even when you seem to be walking alone, remember that we're standing on the shoulders of our ancestors. When we're talking about, you know, this last little bit of discussion where we, we ventured into discussion about parents, I find that to be so very amusing and appropriate as we close out the series of, for this book because it's such a very literal reminder that even when we walk alone, we don't. All of those learnings that were imparted onto us as children walk with us. We can choose to discard some of them. We can choose not to, but you guys have heard me before say, you know, if somebody comes near me with a broom, I start tap dancing to get out of the way. Why? Because I was raising the culture that taught me that it is severe bad luck for a unwed lady to get her feet swept by a broom. Come on now, got a master's degree, I'm a math person. It's nonsense. And yet, don't bring a broom by my feet because I will run away. The thing here is that we, choose. We get to choose. We have the beauty of choice. The meaning of life is meaning. Meaning is intent translated into action. We get to choose. You need a life goal, an ultimate goal to get you through. Keep moving. Set a life goal. But always remember that life goals are absolutely irrelevant. Thank you so much, guys. This episode may be done, but you can always find more travel ideas and opportunities at Delve Travel. Just visit DelveTravel.com. The adventure continues. Ask me why.